However, of course, I'm recording this beforehand, so through the magic of technology, I get to be with you. I, uh, I realize that some of you may not know either what we're, we're doing in this sermon, and so if you're a guest with us, I just want to let you know, we are in now what is the fourth part of a seven-part series uh, called Summit, where we're taking a look at how God meets his people on different mountaintops in Scripture. So we started our series, uh, well, we started our series realizing just how prominent mountains are in Scripture, that even Eden has a certain elevated status because all rivers flow out from it, that the ark arrived on a mountain as its place of safety after the flood. But the first mountain that we looked at a couple, few Sundays ago was Mount Sinai, where God brought former slaves, taught them about who he was, and then overwhelmed him with more than just words, overwhelmed them with uh, the, the sheer uh, power of his presence in a volcanic a sort of um, demonstration of his glory. And the overwhelming sense that we had from Mount Sinai was that God was terrifying with, with flames and fire and those sorts of things. Fast forward through a, a, a bit of a valley of Israel's disobedience, and a couple of weeks ago we looked at Mount Zion, the place of the temple. So we went from Sinai, uh, the beginning place of assembled worship, to Mount Zion, the place of temple worship. And we saw the same kind of fire that God brought down uh, on that mountain, but in a very concentrated way and in a very, not safe way, but in a very um, kind of enhoused way, encamped way, the same way that he did in the tabernacle. God dwelt his glory in a building on Mount Zion. Last week, Brad looked at Mount Carmel, where the fire of God once again descended on a mountain, but in this point, as a, an indication, an, a judgment of false religion that could not duplicate that, and as a uh, sign to all of Israel that their ways of ignoring God would ultimately be judged. That was essentially then, after that third week, after last week, we saw basically um, how God revealed himself through the Old Testament in those different mountains. And so if you just take the story of those three mountains, that God reveals himself, God dwells among us, but that worship is always contested, uh, that really does summarize a lot of the Old Testament story. There is a certain sense in which God's people have always been aware of God's law and given the opportunity to enjoy God's presence um, but there are always challenges. And the Israelite story through all the Old Testament is really a record of their failure to be able to um, see God and yet uh, make the decision over and over to replace him with something less than him. That ultimately resulted in what we saw two weeks ago, that Jesus was going to arrive as the new temple. He was going to arrive as the new one that would house the glory of God on the earth. He came and he uh, tabernacled among us, is the way that John 1 says it. The reason that I'm introducing Jesus into the story right in the very beginning here is because our next mountain, Mount Hermon, is, uh, is the first mountain that we're really going to take a look at in the New Testament. 
But if you're, if you're telling the story of Jesus, we're going to be in Mark, uh, Matthew 17, as you heard read for you. Um, but, but Matthew does not first tell the story of Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration. The first mountain that we see in Matthew is really the Sermon on the Mount, a mountain that really replicates an experience that Israel's people, or that the Jews, that God's people had back from Mount Sinai. God's people were gathered together and brought to a mountain. Matthew really tells the story of Jesus by reminding them of the story of Israel. Very much like Israel, God's people went, or Jesus uh, went down to Egypt like God's people, brought up from Egypt through the wilderness, much like then Jesus was brought up from Egypt and then directed out into the wilderness. Where the Israelites failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. They were tried and tempted and tested in the wilderness and failed to believe God. Jesus was tested in the wilderness and believed God and succeeded. They both went through the waters, the Israelites through the Red Sea, uh, Jesus through the waters of baptism. And then they were brought to mountains. Jesus then bringing everyone to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, in a way that really kind of fulfills and parallels Israel's story. So Israel through Egypt, through the wilderness, through the waters, to the mountain. Jesus, Egypt, waters, wilderness, and then a mountain as well. So that's really the first mountain that we saw. But the mountain that we're going to focus on in Matthew um, comes in, in chapter 17, and it begins with these words, after six days. Now, because we haven't been reading through Matthew, I'm going to use the story of Mark, which you're a lot more familiar with because we just finished Mark. If you remember in Mark chapter 8, there was a moment where Jesus was talking to his disciples and the identity of Jesus is really the question right around Mark chapter 8. That moment in Mark 8 is a lot like Matthew 16, the chapter right before this one. And the same event takes place. They're recorded. Mark and Mark 8, Matthew, Matthew 16. Um, and Jesus asks, as, as people are trying to really figure out who he is, he asks the disciples, who do you guys think that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, that answer is significant for what we're about to see in Matthew chapter 17. Because though we know in, from both Mark and Matthew that Peter didn't really fully believe Jesus in the way that he described it, he used biblical language. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the one who is coming to represent the Father. Um, but the problem is that Peter was talking about it in such a way that still Jesus had to do his bidding. We know that because in both moments, Jesus reveals that that status he has as the son of the living God is going to leave it him to suffer. And Peter corrects Jesus, if you remember that moment. So Jesus goes and tells Peter, you went from the moment where God revealed something to you from heaven to now following the inclinations of the devil. It's not a great moment for Peter. But the phrase that I want you to kind of focus on is the son of the living God. That idea really sets the stage for what's about to happen in Matthew chapter 17, which is why I think Matthew starts with the words, and after six days, six days after what? After that moment where Jesus was 
um, was trying to have his identity revealed and then began to talk to them more and more about what it was going to be like for him to suffer, be rejected, and be persecuted. The Israelites, sorry, the disciples are having trouble believing Jesus. They're having trouble reconciling. Peter's kind of the, the tip of that spear, but all of them are having difficulty with this message that the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Messiah, who should be the conquering one, is instead going to lead them on a path of suffering. Now, if we just pause for a second, the truth is all of us struggle with that. None of us really like the idea that somehow Jesus is going to lead us. That sounds wonderful, but we want him to lead us towards success, towards blessing, towards a better life. We don't want to think that us following Jesus is going to lead to our lives being more difficult. And so if you can own that for a second, I'm not trying to indict you as specially flawed people. I'm just saying this is our inclination. We're the kind of people who don't like to follow Jesus on difficult paths. The disciples were that way. The people of God have always been that way. We're kind of that way too. So in light of that, let me pray for us for a second because what we're about to hear is going to set the stage. But I want to pray to that end and towards that difficulty. So join me. Father, I pray and I ask now for, for my help, for your help, for me right now, Lord, as I'm, as I'm trying to, to preach this. Lord, I, I pray that in the same way that as this video is being heard, that you would help those that are listening. Lord, help them to help us all to follow you. Help us to have hearts that are softened so that you can take us down whatever path you want and that we'll listen to you and follow you on that journey. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a few things that I want to ask questions of you as we're on this mountain with Jesus on Mount Hermon. Uh, and the first question you can see right there in your bulletin or on the slide, do we detect the context of this moment? Let me, let me begin to read for you a little bit more. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, right there in the very beginning, we've got two significant things that happen. One, Jesus doesn't bring all his disciples. Instead, he brings what you might consider to be the inner core of his followers, Peter, James, and John. And he leads them up then. It's clear that they are being selected for this. And he repeats the fact that he leads them up a high mountain and it is by themselves. Verse 1. So this is apparently something that, that Jesus has for these few that is not for the crowds, and that is not yet even for all 12 of his followers. It's not for the larger group that he sends out. This is for a very select group of them. And then verse 2 has another interesting component to it. It's that this word transfigured is used. Now, we, we know that word because we, in some senses, know this story. This is the mountain of transfiguration. It's the, like I said, it's the fourth mountain in our series here called Summit. But the word is interesting because it's not really used in a lot of other spots. It's not like we can go to other places except for the, the same story. 
Uh, so, so Matthew kind of defines it for us. He was transfigured before them. And we're going, huh? What do you mean by that? He says, okay, here's what I mean by that. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now that moment reminds uh, the readers of, of Matthew's book back into some moments in the past uh, where, where different things have been kind of shiny, bright, uh, this, is, this is an indication that something is going on outside of the ordinary, which is part of what uh, so, so helps to define and, and fill up this word transfigured. But of all the Old Testament texts that probably seem to, no pun intended, shine out the most, Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 is probably the one. Listen, listen to this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. We see fiery things burning things all the time. That's what, really, if you think about it, has marked the last three mountains, right? God's glory arriving on the sacrifice, Carmel, um, God's presence at Mount Zion in the temple, and God's presence in a scary volcanic way at Mount Sinai. Here, we're remembering back in Daniel 7, and we recognize from this passage, those fiery moments are indications that glory from heaven is descending onto the earth in a way that is now visible. It's always been there, but people just get to see it at this one particular moment so that we're recognizing something of this fieriness is kind of consuming the moment. Again, pun intended. But it's not the fire that seems to dominate the Mount of Transfiguration. In this moment, it's the whiteness, the brightness. If there's a heavenly fire, so to speak, around things in Daniel 7, a fiery throne, a fiery wheels that, that help to transport and move this, this throne, the one who's seated on the throne is the Ancient of Days. His clothing is white as snow. His hair like pure wool. In other words, Jesus is reflecting the whiteness, the brightness of the actual occupant of the throne room of heaven. It's absolutely clear who we are talking about. This is God. This is not Jesus like the moon reflecting something. This is Jesus having in him a shining source of white brightness like the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. Now, there was a moment that I wanted you to remember from Matthew 16. It was Peter's answer. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Here's the interesting thing. In Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of J days is seated on the throne. And if you remember that story, that scene in Daniel one then comes to the Ancient of Days and he's described like the Son of Man. Jesus, Peter, is already identified as the Son, the Son of the Living God. But in this moment, Peter's orientation is being thrown off. Jesus has called himself the Son of Man in a number of occasions. Jesus has identified himself with the human-like figure that approaches the throne. But what happens now here at this moment? The context of it doesn't just necessarily describe Jesus in terms of the Son of Man. 
Now Jesus is taking on the very nature of the occupant of the throne. Now, these aren't moments for Trinitarian particularities. What this is about is the deity, the godness of Jesus. It is absolutely clear from Daniel chapter 7, who is seated on the throne. That is God. Who is the son of man? Well, we know he is human. We know he is given authority. We know he's even worshipped in a way. <clears throat> but God is on the throne. Who is Jesus according to verse 2? He's not the one who approaches. He is most clearly like the one seated on the throne. Significant moment. Second significant moment comes in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, which always struck me as odd because we don't get to hear anything of the conversation in verse 3, but it always struck me as a little odd. How does Peter know this is Moses and Elijah? Did they have name tags? Was something placed on them? Is it probably the conversation? We really don't know. Peter had never met Moses. Peter had never met Elijah. But they are on a mountain. God's glory is making itself sort of apparent in the face and appearance of Jesus, and suddenly Moses appears, and suddenly Elijah appears. Why those two? Well, if you can remember back to Mount Sinai, which I've said Matthew already kind of has identified the Sermon on the Mount sort of as a, a parallel or a second fulfillment of one sense of what happened at Mount Sinai. Who was on Mount Sinai in the first place? Well, it was Moses. What was Moses doing? He was bringing the law of God. When the Israelites talk about the Old Testament books, one of the ways, one of the shorthand that they had for it was the law. It was the law of Moses, but the law, that which came from Moses was clearly from God. And so the ambassador bringing revelation from God was Moses. One of the characters on the mountain, who had been on the mountain of God, Moses, right here, with Jesus. But who's the second person? The second person is Elijah, who incidentally had also been on Mount Sinai. It's just it happened after what Brad was talking about last week. I apologize if this is redundant. I don't know exactly how much of the story Brad is going to share from Carmel. But after Carmel, um, Elijah is threatened and makes his way on, a, on a, a real retreat from the moment. He helps see the victory of God over these prophets. They are slaughtered. God is victorious. Elijah is victorious. And then Jezebel tells him, I'm going to kill you for what you've done. And he flees. He is scared. Where does he wind up at the end of the journey? He winds up at what is called Horeb, or what is the actual mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Listen to this in 1 Kings chapter 19. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Here he came to a cave and lodged in it and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, go out and stand on the mount 
before the Lord. That's Elijah. Now, the way that God communicates to Moses and through Moses is loud and boisterous. In 1 Kings 19, the way that God communicates to Elijah is actually the opposite. He's supposed to come out and meet with God, and there is a lot of activity, but none of God in any of the activity. God instead comes and speaks to him quietly, softly, a still small voice. Both Moses and Elijah on Mount Sinai. Not only did the old Israelites talk about the Old Testament as the law of God, sometimes the shorthand for it was the law and the prophets, the Moses and who was the chief of the prophets? Elijah. So what we have before Jesus in all his radiance is Two characters who represent the entire Old Testament, all the revelation of God, all that came through the law, all that came through the prophets are now with Jesus on the mountain. Context for this is abundantly clear. Jesus, the Son of God, is radiating the character, the nature, the deity of God himself. With him are all of the law and all of the prophets in the form of Moses and Elijah. And <laughs> what is it that, <clears throat> that Peter wants to do at that moment? Oh, he makes the same kind of blunder as what he has before. He's thinking, Jesus, you have been pretty impressive. Who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus, we've been very impressed by what you're doing. Good, it's going to lead me to suffer. Oh, Jesus, no, that's not the way to go. But now what do we have? Jesus is on the mountain. He's radiating the glory of God. And here comes Moses and Elijah. If you're Peter, you're thinking, now we're complete. We have Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus, the Messiah, but at least now we've got all of Old Testament history behind him. We've got all of the law. We've got all of the prophetic power. We've got all the energy. Maybe now Jesus is set to do what he does. What should we do? I'm going to make some tents. Peter sees the context of what he's going on. He clearly recognizes who's here. He clearly is impressed by who Jesus is. But he wants to add to, and he wants to make sure that Jesus has at least enough props behind him in order to get things done. If you're reading into it a little too much, perhaps, at this moment, but if we pause the scene and we took Peter aside and said, Peter, Tenting, what are you thinking, man? This isn't about camping. This is what, what are you thinking? It's possible what Peter is thinking is that now with the work of Moses and Elijah ready to be there, the, the, the company of Moses and Elijah ready, maybe Jesus won't have to suffer. Maybe with this team in place, there will be another path other than persecution, suffering, and death. Maybe this could go in a different direction. It's hard to say. But somehow, what is meant to be a symbol for Peter and James and John, instead, for Peter, seems to be something that we need to preserve. It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The story then continues. From the context, 
where the voice from heaven dismisses almost out of hand Moses and Elijah and focuses our attention. The spotlight is off of them and now on Jesus entirely. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, God interrupts Peter. While he was still speaking, or sorry, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The result, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Why? Because the context is still with them. Exodus 24, when Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. What is happening? The Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon, is basically just duplicating Sinai all over again. Not only is the glory of God shining out through the face of Jesus and through the clothing of Jesus, but the cloud is now descended and is now speaking about Jesus. Peter even remembers this moment. And in 2 Peter, he says, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What do you notice about the difference between what Jesus or what Peter says and what the Father's voice from the cloud says? Peter wants to preserve the team, speaks in the plural. And God the Father has brought Moses and Elijah along and then almost immediately just dismisses them. He doesn't say, this is my beloved team. This is my beloved posse. This is the trinity of the trio that I need. He said, this is my beloved son Singular. It is with him I am well pleased. It is unbelievable how similar we are to Peter in this moment. Just in the same way that we are similar to Peter, in that when God calls us on a path of suffering, we want to almost move in a satanic direction towards our own comfort. That's the way we're like him in chapter 16. Here in 17, though, it is amazing the number of times we can dismiss the strength and sufficiency of Jesus by wanting to add to who he is. I don't know why we do it. But we think that what God needs or what we need from God could be summed up in the category of Jesus plus, Jesus with, Jesus and, and God the Father's voice is so very clear. This, we might almost add this alone. He alone is my son, my beloved son, and it is with him I am well pleased. That's why Peter got it right. Maybe not here in this exact moment. Sort of a weird Peter-esque moment when to offer to go camping on the top of this mountain. But instead, he got it right when he said, what was happening at this moment when we heard this voice? 
was that he at that moment was receiving honor. He was receiving glory. And the voice who was doing that for him was God the Father. And this majesty and this glory and this love that were being declared to us about Jesus communicated one thing to me. He's enough. He is enough. And so as we join through Matthew's words, as we join through the work of the Spirit in kind of bringing us to this moment, the question we have to ask first is, do you see the context? Is, is the context clear? Do you, do you see Sinai? Is that, is, that, is that making sense to you? Do you see the, the weight of the Old Testament kind of pressed on here? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, we see the context. Great. Do you see the sun? Is he in the spotlight so much so that everything else could fade away? It's that moment on the stage, all the cast and all the crew and all the characters, and then the spotlight comes down to the one person. And as they begin speaking, then, you know, all the stagehands are doing their work behind because that's in the dark now. It doesn't matter. Stuff can get shifted around. Secondary characters can move. And it's all right because the spotlight is on the one character and he's speaking right now. What happens to us when we're observing that? We we just get distracted. We're we're distracted from all the other stuff. And we're just listening. The spotlight right here is on Jesus. Matthew has been saying it from the beginning of his book. Jesus has come and succeeded where people have failed time and time and time again. And Jesus said, all that law, I'm fulfilling it in me. All the prophetic voice, it was pointing to me. The spotlight is on me. And as much as he's been trying to say that to them, because it accompanied a path of suffering and death, he was not getting the kind of audience that he needed. And now the Father just sort of amplifies the spotlight on Jesus. His clothes are radiant. Everything else is focusing. And he's saying, are you paying attention to Jesus? It is okay. That glory is to be given to him and him alone. It is okay that salvation is by him and him alone. It is okay that everything he made was created for him and him alone. We as believers are to be kind in the way we communicate this message, but it is okay that we communicate the message that Christianity is supposed to be about Jesus, that the Bible is about Jesus, and that our lives are supposed to be consumed with Jesus. Let him focus the spotlight on himself so that everything else can fade away. So that we can turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and that the things of the world would go strangely dim in the light of his glory and the light of his grace. That's what God the Father is doing at this very moment. And so the question is, if you see the context, do you see the Son at this moment as well? And then the last question that we have to ask then is, when will we listen to Jesus from this moment 
on. The transfiguration comes at a very strategic moment in Jesus' life. He has impressed them and called them, and they have resisted. Peter is the pinnacle of it all. And the question right here then is, are we hearing the end of the Father's words about his beloved Son? This is my beloved Son. I'm pleased with my beloved Son. Will you listen to my beloved Son? And that's the question we have to ask. Will we listen to Jesus from this moment on? Now, when the disciples heard this, verse 6, they were terrified and they fell on their faces. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That moment in Matthew is also not the first time that this has happened. A very similar moment took place just a few chapters before in chapter 14. Let me read a little snippet to you from verses 26 and 27. It says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. There were ample reasons to be afraid when the disciples encountered a man walking on the water. There were ample reasons for them to believe this is not a man walking on the water. But a few chapters ago, Jesus had just walked on the water. Jesus had just defied the laws of physics and walked on water the way that a ghost would and then looked at them and said, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus can be trusted. And if he can be trusted, he can be trusted with our obedience as well. The same words are the words that Jesus uses to lift up the disciples from the ground in verse 7. Jesus came and touched them saying, rise, have no fear. Why were they afraid? Verse 6, why were they on their faces terrified? Because they're on Mount Sinai of sorts, hearing the voice of God speaking to them as if we can understand the same context, as from a thunderstorm. And he's saying, you need to listen to Jesus. There's a reason that fear and obedience are so tightly linked. And it's not just a literary thing. It's not just that's the way it kind of flows out of this passage. It's that more often than not, what leads us not to obey Jesus isn't just that we don't want to. It's that we recognize the stakes that are involved. 
Following Jesus means we risk. Following Jesus means we trust. Following Jesus means that we go in a direction different than the one we would be probably inclined to if our self-preservation is what we're on the line. But to follow Jesus means we trust Jesus abundantly. And people have not been good at this. The reason that Israel went after idols is because they were afraid. They were afraid of drought. They were afraid of defeat in war. They were afraid of a lack of uh, having children. All the different things that the false gods offered. The Israelites were afraid. They didn't know if God was going to come through. And so they turned to another option. It's the same story all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Why did they not follow God and not obey God? It was very simple. It was just because they were afraid that they were going to miss out on what the serpent was offering that seemed to be better. Fear always leads us on a path away from obedience. But what Jesus comes and does for us so kindly is before demanding our obedience, he demonstrates his reliability. This is always been the pattern of God to prove who he is and then to call us to follow in light of what we see and understand and know about him. Does he take the Israelites to Mount Sinai before demonstrating his superiority? No. He defeats the gods. He shows the plagues. He provides in the wilderness and then calls them to come and obey. And in fact, in giving commands, he says, I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who redeemed you. Therefore, you can follow me. That's the same language he has always used. This is from Psalm 56. Listen to it in its entirety. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. But when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps. As they have waited for my life, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. And he goes and uses the same phrase. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Church, that is exactly the question that we have to answer. That is the dilemma that is exactly before us. And it is exactly the dilemma that, the, that Mount Hermon and the Mount of Transfiguration pose for the disciples. This is Jesus. Will you listen? Can he command? Can he speak? He radiates the glory of heaven. He is commended by the voice from heaven. Will we listen? And I think think that the question is whether we have been so distracted by the world that we have forgotten to look up to the face of Jesus and wonder what we see. We spend so much of our life cowering, 
worried about the future, worried about finances, worried about health, worried about what people think of us. And it leaves us on our face, cowering down in the dirt. And we're worried that if we look up at Jesus, what we're going to see is a scowl, a a scolding finger, a, a, a wagging arm, some sense that Jesus is disappointed with us, looking down at us. And that's not the picture we have of Jesus at all. If we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face, then the reason that the rest of the world will grow strangely dim and all the other voices telling us we can put our confidence in those things will grow strangely dim, the reason that the spotlight will focus on him and will want to stay there is because we will see in the gospel exactly what the disciples saw. And we will hear in Jesus' words exactly what the disciples hear, that we can rise and have no fear. We can look up to Jesus and recognize that God didn't send the Son of God to the world in order to condemn the world, but that through him we might be saved. This has always been the way. The Israelites, bitten by snakes and serpents in the wilderness, needed to do one thing, to look up to what was raised before them as the point and the cross of their salvation. Would they look up and see the means of salvation that God has provided? God is speaking from heaven and saying, here he is, he is my son, will you look to him? And will you listen to him? That's the answer. But it's also the question to us from Mount Hermon. If we feel the weight of this context and we see the glory of the sun, is there any reason that you would keep your face in the dirt? Is there any reason you would turn away and wander into the shadows? Is there any reason you wouldn't look to the Son, see Him reaching down to save you, and then give your life and your obedience to Him? That's what He wants. It's what He's calling for. And this and this alone is the message that He's entrusted to our church. It's not go have great families. It's not go be successful. It's not live a better life than your neighbor so that your neighbor will want to be like you. It's I have found salvation in the Son of God and I encourage you, lift your face up out of the dirt and look to him and you'll see him reaching down to pull you up as well. It's this Jesus who is worthy of our praise and it's this Jesus that we're going to see in the remaining mountains to come. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this portrait from Matthew 17. We're grateful that when Jesus reaches down to grab us, we see that his hands are pierced for us. And we remember that his blood has been shed for us, his body broken for us, and that he died and was raised for us. Lord, I don't know what it looks like for each individual hearing this to lift their face out of the dirt 
and to surrender their fears and to look to you. But I am grateful that we know that when we look to you, we find you faithful. We find you worthy of praise. And we find you radiant and gracious at the same time. So Lord, we pray, would you help us to look to Jesus? In his name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. Isaac, well done. Thank you. Sorry you get to hear it twice. <laughs> that was always the case.